This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado has regained the jobs it lost during the recession, and median household income has also recovered. It's at almost $64,000. This is according to the Colorado Center on Law and Policy, whose mission is to, quote, advance the well-being of low-income Coloradans. But the economic news isn't all rosy in its annual report called The State of Working Colorado. And with me is the center's Michelle Webster. Welcome to the program. Thank you. While you're trumpeting the good news in the report, you add that it doesn't tell the full story. What else is in there uh, in addition to this uh, gain from the recession? That's right. This We think this report points to several challenges that are still facing the Colorado economy as we are on this road towards economic recovery. It's clear that, you know, broadly shared prosperity has not returned to the entire workforce. So a couple of things that we found that that I think are concerning um, and things that we should be paying attention to are, for one, you know, we're more than six years into the economic recovery. Mm -hmm. And despite all the good news about unemployment rates dropping and median household income uh, regaining, if we look at median hourly wages, those have been flat or falling since 2009. Median hourly wages. And those obviously touch workers who who earn an hourly wage and who are more likely to be low income, would you say? That's exactly right. So, you know, even though the economy is certainly expanding, you know, we have growing productivity. Productivity has actually increased by 30% um, since 2000. But the median hourly wage has been has fallen over that time. So even though the economy is expanding, not everyone is experiencing that expansion. And that also speaks to the quality of the jobs that are being regained, that they aren't necessarily high wage jobs. That's right. We do another analysis in this report that looks at what the share of jobs looks like in Colorado. And in 2007, an estimated 13% of jobs paid low wages, wages not sufficient to support a single adult meeting basic needs. Okay, 13%. 13%. And that has grown to almost 21% in 2015. In just about an eight-year spread. That's right. Now, of course, voters passed an increase in the minimum wage, and this would not reflect that. That's right. So the minimum wage uh, Amendment 70, which passed in November, would go into effect starting January 1st, 2017. a gradual increase towards 2020 of $12. Do you expect then to see in future reports that that will make a big difference uh, for low-wage workers? We certainly expect that it will. The The minimum wage establishes the wage floor for the bottom 20% of workers. So, and we estimate that about 480,000 workers will see an, see an increase in wages because of that. Um, but, you know, we also think that that's not enough. That's certainly a step in the right direction. But there is more to do to support the development of good jobs in Colorado. I want to talk about labor force participation, which is a bit of a jargony way of saying who is working. And what you find is that men particularly, and in a certain age bracket, 
are not participating in the economy in ways that reflect a recovery in in their demographic. Say just a bit more about that. Right. So this is a trend that's apparent nationally and in Colorado. So while all the jobs have returned to the state, not all workers have returned to work. And in particular, like you said, it's men ages 25 to 54, where the prime age workers have not fully returned to work. So, Well, help us understand that. If the jobs have returned for the workers, why wouldn't the workers have returned? Yeah, and I think it has to do with the fact that um, you know, just just as we were speaking about that, the that many of the jobs that have returned to the state are lower wage jobs, and the fact that um, a lot of the jobs that were lost during the recession were jobs that were well paying jobs for lower um, skilled occupations. A lot of those jobs haven't returned, so the jobs that traditionally we have seen men occupy um, in manufacturing and construction, for instance, um, a lot of those jobs have been replaced with jobs that are in the service industry, which are traditionally held by by women and are lower paying. All right. We're talking about the state of working Colorado. This is a new report from the Colorado Center on Law and Policy, which says its mission is to, quote, advance the well-being of low-income Coloradans. And goodness, Michelle Webster, the trends you're talking about seem to be the the sorts of trends that led to the results of the November election, particularly at the presidential level, this frustration with those who felt left behind by the recovery. Would you say that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I also think that the... um, you know, Colorado voters deciding to increase the minimum wage is somewhat consistent with the national election results. You know, oh. people are feeling the, um, you know, the pressure of trying to meet their basic needs and um, working in an economy that just isn't working for them. Uh, another area you focus on is the state's growing population. And you say there won't be enough available jobs to keep up. What do you base that assertion on? Right. So this is analysis that looks at, projects out job creation and st- how the state population is growing. Okay. We, forecasts obviously exist for both. Right. So the um, so the jobs deficit that we report this year is about 118,000 jobs. And that takes into account the fact that the Colorado population has been growing you know, pretty substantially. We are one of the fastest growing states in the country for the last few years. And the population has increased by about 400,000 in the past few years. So the good news, though, in this story is that that jobs deficit has been closing. So last year, we reported that the jobs deficit was about 143,000 jobs. This year, it's less than 120,000 jobs. I think what might strike some as remarkable is that there are labor shortages in some fields, right? There aren't enough workers. And yet you're saying Colorado isn't creating enough jobs. I suppose those two trend lines can can exist together, can coexist. Absolutely. And the yeah. question is, is the worker trained for the right job? That's right. That's right. I think that's... Um, I think there is, you can definitely have both of those trends existing at the same time. Okay. Uh, In this report, I want to quote a line. Colorado is increasingly becoming a multiracial state 
with a persistent race-based economic divide. We talked about the ages of those who are not participating as much in the workforce and their gender, but uh, have not yet talked about race. These are these are not mincing. This is not mincing words here. Persistent race-based economic divide. Say more about that. Yeah. So we have been increasingly over the past few years trying to bring more a sharper focus to the race-based divide in Colorado. And in the report, we talk about. Um, There's some data from the state demographer's office that says that by 2050, 48% of the labor force will be people of color, primarily Latino. And today, people of color in Colorado are disproportionately low income. They still face higher unemployment rates and poverty rates and are more likely to live in high poverty neighborhoods. And we think this is concerning. Um, We think, you know, ultimately... Diversity is a good thing for our economy, you know, provided that everyone has access to the opportunity that they need to to thrive. But you're saying that if these minority communities continue to make up a larger and larger part of the workforce and the current trends of the economic gaps continue, there's something of a perfect storm that the state is headed for by, say, 2050. That's right. That's right. And that's that's partially why we put these numbers out there so that people understand how these trends are converging. And I gather that this relates to everything from education to healthcare to even transportation. You see these all as interconnected. That's right. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Michelle Webster is with the Colorado Center on Law and Policy, which says it advocates on behalf of low-wage workers. And we talked about their annual report out now, The State of Working Colorado. Dear Mayor Hancock, what are you going to do? That's the title of a new art exhibition in Denver. Students from an after-school program at North High recorded interviews with people who are homeless. The show is also filled with what they call artifacts from the streets. Producer Stephanie Wolf toured the show last week as these young artists put up the finishing touches. The art gallery, Platform, is in northwest Denver, blocks from several of the city's homeless shelters. When you walk in, you see the big question on the wall. Dear Mayor Hancock, what are you going to do? My name is Sarah Gerard. I'm an artist from Brooklyn, and I'm the resident artist at Platform. Gerard led the project. She writes a lot about homelessness and was once homeless herself. She says she didn't intend to use her residency program in Denver to focus on this issue, but... Just a couple of weeks after I got here, I think like a week and a half or two weeks after I got here, um, the city began conducting these more frequent uh, sweeps. The sweeps were part of the city's urban camping ban. Crews have cleared out homeless camps throughout Denver since March. Officials say it's to clean up unsafe and unsanitary situations. Mayor Michael Hancock has since changed the ban. He says police would no longer seize blankets and tents of people who are homeless when it's cold. What you're seeing in the middle of the gallery is a sculpture consisting of former encampment materials. So uh, Rebecca and I just drove around the city collecting tarps, sleeping bags, tents, cardboard, shopping cart, police tape. 
Rebecca is Rebecca Vaughn, Platform's Artistic and Programming Director. Vaughn says they found what they believed were abandoned materials at highway overpasses, alleyways, and dumpsters. We had dis- a lot of discussions about how we felt un- uh, uncomfortable when we were looking around for these materials, not because we were venturing into any sort of like unknown territory, but because we worried maybe we were tinkering with someone's existing camp. She says if they thought a camp was active, they'd leave the stuff alone. Artist Sarah Gerard hopes people will feel comfortable enough to step inside this recreated encampment. She invited me in. Oh, man, I have to duck down real well. Yeah. But see, then you can kind of kneel in here. And... The structure is covered with tarps. This could potentially block out some wind and... Or rain or yeah. snow or... Yeah. But I think even more important than that is the feeling that it's a safe mental space. The sweeps are not the sole focus of the exhibition, because as Gerard says, the issue is complex. There's a lot more to talk about surrounding homelessness than criminalizing laws. And certainly, I know the city is doing a lot already to help its unhoused citizens. But the question remains what more to be done. One thing Denver has done is to provide same-day work opportunities with city agencies. It's a new initiative called Denver Day Works. The hope is that it will lead to longer-term employment. Gerard directs me to another part of the gallery. This is Patrick. He is a vendor of the Denver Voice, uh, a local street paper. She pulls out a photo of a man in his late 50s. His full name is Patrick Bellario. These portraits will be hanging in a line on the wall with Android phones with their interviews loaded onto them. North High School students interviewed Bellario and learned they had something in common. Graduated from North High in 1976. They also asked him what it's like to live on the streets. I can tell you about what it's like being homeless. Uh, There's nothing worse because I felt estranged from my family. It's one of the symptoms. Estrangement from society, family, everything. And that gets to the heart of this exhibition, to engage young people in the issue. Esther Cornish is a freshman and one of the teen artists. Well, I definitely want to help more. I thought that homelessness was a thing and there were homeless people, but I didn't realize that a lot of camps were being broken apart and that this is just where people live and this is their home. Days after my visit, I learned that Mayor Hancock dropped by Platform for a surprise visit. He toured the exhibition and met the artist. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. And we'd hoped to tour it with the mayor. His office declined, saying they were uncomfortable with him critiquing student art. His team has said they're open to sitting down with us soon to talk about homelessness, though. The show Dear Mayor Hancock, What Are You Going to Do? runs at Platform in Denver through Friday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Ranchers, feedlots, and even kids in 4-H sometimes put antibiotics in animal feed and water. It's known to promote growth as well as prevent disease. But there are growing concerns over antibiotic-resistant germs. So starting January 1st, this kind of feed must be used under veterinary supervision. That's because of a change in a federal rule. Dr. Paul Morley does infectious disease research at the Colorado State University Vet School. And Dr. Morley, welcome to the program. Good morning, Ryan. Tell me why meat and dairy producers, I should say, would want or need to use medicated animal feed. Well, they use antibiotics in uh, in animals for the same reason that they use antibiotics in people, which is to treat infectious diseases caused by bacteria, uh, as well as sometimes to prevent those diseases. Sometimes that's 
most efficient in treating the animals to put that in the feed or in the water. And, and so that's, that's why they do use them that way. Okay, so it can be reactionary or preventative, you're saying. Aren't antibiotics sometimes needed because of what they feed cattle, for instance, that their diets can make them sick? Well, not exactly that that way. Uh, the management systems that we use to produce animals can change the risk for diseases. So if we had uh, pigs or cattle or chickens which ranged free, they'd have a bigger problem with parasitic diseases, so worms and those kinds of things. Um, but when we can find them to help uh, protect them from those diseases as well as to uh, make it more efficient to to grow them, it does put them at greater risk for contagious diseases. So um, some of the diets, yes, they do. Um, it does. Ch- the management systems do predispose them to different infectious diseases, and so we have to work to prevent those diseases and sometimes to treat them. And the aspect of contributing to their growth is fascinating to me because I wouldn't normally associate that with antibiotics. Um, How do antibiotics help in growth in general? That's a really good question, Ryan. Um, The the improved efficiency of production uh, was something that was noted uh, early, early when they started to experiment with antibiotics in treating animals, so back in the 30s and the 40s. And it's not really well known why animals would be able to grow faster or gain more weight with the same amount of food intake, but that is one of the impacts. There's two basic reasons why we think that that can happen. One is that um, we're actually preventing diseases with the antibiotics or treating infections that you're not really seeing the, the signs of those. And so because they're not sick, then they grow better. Um, the other reason is that it does change the the bacteria that are found in the intestines, and so uh, it can shift the population that's there so that they are better able to use the energy in the diet to help the animals grow. Mm. And this isn't just about beef cattle, correct? No, that's correct. It's um, the use of antibiotics is is found in all animals, so pigs, chickens, horses, cattle. Uh, and even your pets. How will this change in a federal rule to have veterinary supervision affect farmers, feedlot operators, and even the kid in 4-H? Well, the concern about antibiotic resistance is is obviously important, and it's growing around the world. Uh, In response to public concerns uh, and concerns within the, the within the government. The FDA worked with the pharmaceutical companies, the animal production uh, associations, as well as with veterinary associations to come up with a rule which everyone agreed upon. And that was to make sure that any feed that contained antibiotics or any antibiotics that were sold for use in water had to be done under the uh, supervision of a veterinarian. So just like you would receive a prescription for an antibiotic and you would take it to a pharmacy, this rule makes it universal within the United States that if you want to, if you want to use those antibiotics or if it's felt like that is needed in the feed or in the water, then the veterinarian has to write a type of prescription and then they have to take that to the, the producer has to take that to the company which makes the feed. And so that has to be done. There's there's oversight at all of those levels. And was there a sense that antibiotics were being overused? Or is this just going to create a regulation 
but result in the same amount of antibiotic use? Well, that's a really good question. And it's not really known what impact it will have on the overall use, but um, it's important that the public had concerns. It, it's pretty clear from the, from the press um, as well as from the feedback that's going through the government that, that society has concerns about how antibiotics are used. And as a veterinarian who's worked in this area for a number of years, I, I think that, that that needs to be listened to. So I believe, and, and my colleagues that I work with in, uh, in veterinary medicine as well as in uh, animal agriculture, they don't mind the fact that this will have to go through a regulation to use antibiotics. Um, it's a necessary oversight to address society's concerns about these things. But it sounds like will you're not. Cha- yeah, exactly. <laughs> I interrupted you at the at the key moment. Will okay. it change anything? Go ahead. Yeah. So that's a good question. Well, because most of the antibiotics, in my opinion, are not used for growth promotion, um, I don't think it will change the the total amount of antibiotics are used to a to a large degree the the truth we'll see in the, in the in the amounts that come you know that are used after this legislation but it i think it's an important thing that it's addressing society's concerns that says that we have oversight um, by trained medical professionals to address those concerns now the fda has other um rules that are under consideration that are, will follow up that may have a larger impact. So this this rule, the veterinary feed directive, that goes into effect January 1st yeah. of 2017, that may be the first step to some further changes. Can you give me a quick example of the, the coming changes beyond it? Sure. So the, the rules that are being considered right now and are out for um, comment would... Uh, limit the duration and the amount of antibiotics that are used in a particular group of animals or or in any animal. So you couldn't use antibiotics for months and months. Um, Technically, that is allowed now. Uh, It is, it does happen under certain conditions. um, And, but this rule would, would restrict the ability to do that. Is there any sense or has there been perhaps any research to show that humans, people's susceptibility to antibiotic resistance is even related to, say, bovine use of antibiotics. Is that link solid? That's a really good question. And and as someone who's worked in, the, in that area doing research, I would say that, no, it's not solid. Okay. Um, I think that there are there probably is an oversimplification of thinking about use in animals and the risk to people. Uh, I have a, I have a good friend, a colleague who describes it like this. If you think you understand antimicrobial resistance, it hasn't been properly described to you, right? It's very, (laughs) it's very complicated. So there, there are probably uses that are uh, not risky in terms of human health and what happens. And there are maybe uses that are more risky. Um, and so I think that we're continuing to do research to to try and figure out what are more appropriate, what are safe ways that we can promote the health and welfare of animals, which deserve to be which deserve to be protected, as well as protecting the environment and protecting people. Uh, um, Dr. Morley, before we go, um, just yes. about a minute left. Should consumers be looking for meat labeled antibiotic free? Is that an important distinction in in meat? 
That's a good question, too. Um, the, the truth is that all of your meat is antibiotic-free. In other words, there are no residues. There are, there's no drug concentration of antibiotics in your food. Really? So that's a bit of a, that's a, bit of a label that's uh, you know, trying to get you to, to be, uh, for those that are health conscious and think this is an important problem, that that's not an issue. We have, um, we have protocols in place to make sure that, that, that there are not antibiotics in your feed. In the hmm. same way that the things that we do to promote food safety so that there are not harmful bacteria in your food, those also protect you from bacteria that might be resistant so that it's unlikely that you're exposed to those things. Should you buy those products? If you feel like that's an important thing, then we would encourage you to do that. Oh, that's, right. a, that's, a, how the vote, that's how the consumer you know, votes, right, is with their dollars. So yeah, a values you, thing in a way. Yes. Yeah. Thanks yeah, so much right. for being with us. And um, I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you, Ryan. Dr. Paul Morley, epidemiologist and infection control researcher at CSU's College of Veterinary Medicine. A journalist you used to hear on Colorado Matters has died. It's Colorado Matters. I'm Dan Myers. Our guest today is someone who just... Dan Myers held a number of titles at CPR News, host, producer, and first editor of our Public Insight Network, helping us find new voices and perspectives to bring to air. He came to Colorado Public Radio after a long, successful career in print journalism at the Denver Post and the Philadelphia Inquirer, among other publications. Dan's legacy at CPR can be seen in our regular conversations with the governor. He was the first to produce those, starting at the tail end of the Bill Owens administration. Dan loved sports. He got to watch Sunday's Broncos game with his son before succumbing to cancer. He saw sports as a way to tell other stories, like when he reported on shrinking towns on Colorado's eastern plains through the lens of high school football and homecoming. This was in the Arickery School District. Our king candidate will be number 57, Mr. Chris Hill. No suspense about who will win. The king has to be a senior boy, and Chris is it. There are two candidates for queen, the other two seniors at Arickery, girls named Marissa Amos and Larissa Craig. Fresh from their winning volleyball game, they've changed into pretty black dresses. Their shoes disappear into the grass of the football field. Larissa is chosen. The couple put on crowns, pose for pictures, and then... Welcome back to your second half of six-man football. The game is a blowout for a Rickery, 47-6. Hill scores five touchdowns, runs for 128 yards. Dan Myers with 65. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The streets were quiet on December 31st, 1915, even though alcohol would be illegal the next day. Denver Post reporters had expected scenes of rampant debauchery. It's been a century since Colorado voted for prohibition four years before the rest of the country went dry with the ratification of the 18th Amendment, which of course didn't stick. Jason Hansen has studied Colorado prohibition. He's with History Colorado and joins Nathan Heffel. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. The front page of the Denver Post on January 1st, 1916 has a headline that screams, Denver drinks health of New Year in lemonade as joy liquids vanish. They were drinking lemonade? 
They were not uh, by choice, but because they ran out of the uh, the hard stuff um, early in the evening. Why was that? Uh, it was a combination of hotels not wanting to get stuck with big stockpiles. And people coming out to toast the last legal drink that they were going to get for the foreseeable future. They came out. They ordered up. Uh, by 9 o'clock, most of the, the great hotels in the city were reporting that they had run dry. And they switched to lemonade. They switched to lemonade. <laughs> there was also a funeral for, for this guy named John Barleycorn. Tell me about that guy. So John Barleycorn is not a real guy. <laughs> um, John Barleycorn is the personification of, of whiskey and, and other spirits. And uh, some uh, folks with a sense of humor and probably... Uh, a few libations to help them uh, in their creative endeavors. Um, hosted a funeral for John Bileycorn. They they rented a camel from a nearby circus and pulled a, a funeral wagon through the streets, uh, uh, toasting his his life and his untimely demise. And did that happen just in Denver, or were there other funerals across the state? As, as... I don't know if there were other funerals, but there were other uh, toasts and celebrations and ways to to mark the passing of of an era. Why, briefly, did Colorado go dry before many other states? Was Were there crime waves before Prohibition? Was there strong religious feelings about alcohol? It, it was a combination of things. It's certainly a, a factor of the progressive era taking hold in, in Colorado. Uh, reformers who wanted to improve uh, uh, everyday life for a wide swath of people um, and, and saw... Uh, banning alcohol as a way to do that. But this is a movement that uh, has roots in American society that go back, um, you know, a century before this. Uh, uh, even to the constitutional founders, they were debating. Uh, Dr. Uh, Benjamin Rush was uh, talking about temperance. He didn't mean prohibition, but he uh, understood drunkenness to be a disease. And, and some of the first local temperance societies formed in the late 1700s. Um, so was Ben Rush a, a, a framer of the Constitution? He was, yes. Um and so he felt uh, essentially this was a movement that began then, but it really picked up speed in the nineteen you know nineteen fourteen nineteen fifteen nineteen sixteen. Sure, it it um you know it, it always been operating in the background uh, and gaining strength. Maine went dry briefly in the eighteen fifties. Uh, other states went dry before Colorado. Um, so it was it was in the air, so to speak. But uh, Colorado seems to have gotten an assist from uh, groups who moved to Colorado for. Uh, our beautiful scenery and the the sort of uh, spiritual inspiration that it provided. Um, there were a number of utopian colonies in Colorado in the, the late 1800s and, and early 1900s, and uh, those groups um, often were were some of the places that banned alcohol earlier before before even the state went dry. I'm thinking of Horace Greeley and his utopian society up in northern Colorado. Sure, yeah, named for Horace Greeley. Uh, he never actually um, lived there, and... Uh, but he, uh, Greeley was one of the places uh, where temperance was, was the law of the city. It was um, cities, uh, the Colorado legislator gave uh, cities the right to decide for themselves whether they would be dry or not long before the state went dry. And, and Greeley did go dry. That, of course, led to the uh, outgrowth of cities on Greeley's border, um, like Garden City, where uh, the thirsty could go outside of Greeley to get a drink, even if it was only across the street outside of Greeley. So the, the town of Garden City began because of prohibition in Greeley. I think there may have been a little something there before, but it certainly got a boost. Well, it, it, I think Garden City has legal pot shops, but uh, Greeley, the city itself, does not, if I, if I remember correctly. And that's, it, it's interesting how you can connect the two there. 
in in terms of back when there was prohibition, were there raids? Were there gang wars? I'm reminded of scenes from the TV show Boardwalk, Boardwalk Empire, uh, the movie of the Untouchables. Was it like that here in Colorado before sure. national prohibition? It it wasn't Chicago. Uh, but there were there were raids. Um, I, I believe you guys have some pictures of of various um, uh, state and federal agents seizing liquor stocks and, and hatcheting barrels open uh, on your website. Yeah. Um, there were uh, rival factions um, in Pueblo and Denver that were competing to control the the bootlegging trade, and and that did uh, for a, a short time turn pretty violent. Um, there, so. Uh, yeah, it was happening. There was a lot of money to be made. There was a lot of control at stake, and and anytime those factors seem to be in play, uh, the the result seems predictable in this era. But there were loopholes, weren't there? I mean, wasn't there one Denver congregation that was drinking a bit too much of the sacramental wine? And- sure. Yeah. When the uh, when the state went dry in 1916, uh, there were plenty of loopholes. It was illegal to uh, manufacture it for sale and illegal to sell it, but it was. Uh, Still okay to use it for sacramental purposes, for medicinal purposes, and it was not illegal to possess alcohol in your home, which was surely the uh, most generous invitation to home brewing ever crafted in legislation. Um, so there was uh, there was a notable case early on of a a congregation that was drinking about four hundred gallons a month of sacramental wine. Um, okay, there were uh, there was a run on prescriptions because doctors were allowed to prescribe, um, I think, four ounce portions of liquor uh, to help patients in various ailments. Um, <laughs> You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking about prohibition in Colorado with Jason Hansen. He's the director of interpretation and research at History Colorado. One of the oldest bars in Denver still in operation is the Buckhorn Exchange at 1000 Osage Street in Denver. Here's the restaurant's manager, Bill Dutton. He says then-owner Henry Zietz kept the restaurant alive during Prohibition by opening up a small grocery store in front of the bar. Supposedly, and again, these are all these rumors and legends from a long time ago, and he'd come in and he'd sell out, uh, sell them hollowed-out loaves of bread with bottles of spirits in it. But that is also where supposedly he would keep the bread and stuff. And he also says there was a hidden room above the bar where the whiskey just kept flowing. During Prohibition, um, we supposedly had a, uh, a secret staircase into the upstairs that went up to a room with no doors. And if we were ever going to get raided, we would get a heads up because... Uh, Zietz was very good friends with the police people in Denver, and if ever they knew that the feds were going to come in, he'd get a call, and then anybody who was drinking would go up to this room, and there was no doorways other than the entrance from the secret staircase. And again, he's speaking of Henry Zietz, who owned the Buckhorn Exchange during Prohibition. He believes it was that relationship with the politicians and the cops that made his bar liquor license number one after Prohibition. Was there this active underground uh, of gangsters and speakeasies around Denver? Sure. Uh, the uh, Denver Post, which was a strong temperance advocate, uh, used to accuse um, the Rocky Mountain News newsboys of giving away uh, Sugar Moon, which was a locally produced moonshine here in Colorado, with uh, <laughs> with their papers as a way to outsell their, their rivals. Um, I myself used to live in the Highland neighborhood in Denver, and mm-hmm. the Small Doan family house was just down the street from me. And they, too, uh, the current owner, discovered tunnels and, and booby traps. Uh, they were uh, well known to be distributing uh, both uh, liquor and favors. Um, how, how 
how seriously did the police take this? Uh, were there really serious attempts at enforcement early on and then it kind of became lax? Or? Sure. I think there were serious attempts at enforcement throughout. There was always a problem that uh, there weren't enough resources to enforce a law that was wildly unpopular. Um, and especially in Denver, uh, the citizens of Denver uh, tried to resist prohibition. Uh, they um, And in fact, the city council actually provoked a constitutional challenge um, that Denver should have the right to regulate liquor laws within its own borders, mm. um, despite the state law. Uh, they lost, obviously, but the the law never had widespread support in Denver, and it's hard to support any. It's hard to enforce any law if that's the case. And then on April seventh, nineteen thirty three, the first cases of three two beer were produced by the Coors Brewery in Colorado, but full repeal came nationwide in December. So it seems that Colorado banned booze before the entire nation, and then began repeal before the entire nation. Well, that was a uh, that was a half step that was uh, taken nationwide. Actually, the yeah. three two beer. Um, it was uh, a way to get the breweries back to work and to get beer into people's hands uh, before we could get the full uh, repeal. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. It's been a real pleasure. Jason Hansen is with History Colorado and spoke to Nathan Heffel about prohibition in the state. See photos from the era, including the first raid in Uray, at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. After Broncos games at Mile High, leftover nachos and brats don't necessarily go to waste. Much of it feeds people who are poor and hungry, thanks to a group called We Don't Waste. As the year ends, we're listening back to some of our favorite segments from 2016, including this one. Andrea Dukakis tagged along with We Don't Waste as it picked up food from another venue, Coors Field. Their day started at the group's headquarters in Denver's Rhino neighborhood. After the Rockies' recent three-game series against the Toronto Blue Jays, the We Don't Waste crew prepared for a pickup. So we have three trucks. We have a big one that can take very large loads of food, pallets of food. Tim Sanford is the director of operations. That means he keeps the trains, actually the trucks, running. Like on this sunny Thursday morning. We have a small refrigerated truck, 10 foot. It's very well suited. We Don't Waste picks up excess food from sports arenas, the convention center, and other large venues around Denver and Boulder. They take food that was prepared or is about to expire, nothing that was served to a customer. This morning, when Sanford opens the truck, it smells a lot like ripened fruit, which the team picked up from a different venue the day before. We have a pallet of bananas and a pallet of uh, all-natural juice. That's about a ton of bananas, Sanford estimates, which he said would have otherwise gone into the landfill by the airport. It's perfectly edible, good food. Sanford climbs into the truck and heads for the baseball park. He says the food we don't waste collects ends up in cities across the Front Range and as far away as South Dakota. Working with the Lakota tribe up in the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, they don't have enough food for their residents up there. Sanford stops at the security gate at Coors Field, then drives up to the receiving docks. We meet up with We Don't Waste founder and executive director Arlen Preblood and head inside. This hallway is a long hallway. On each side are large walk-ins that store everything from the bread to beer to uh, soft drinks. I mean, if I open this, 
cooler right here. They've got strawberries, they've got pastry. There's actually Jose Cuervo tequila in here. We Don't Waste won't take the Jose Cuervo, but they do wheel out a nearly six-foot-tall cart. It's filled with dozens of aluminum pans. They're wrapped tightly, so the contents don't spoil. Together, they add up to nearly 1,500 servings of food. We're going to cut open the brown wrap here. The team loads them into the truck and finds out what's inside. Uh, asparagus and pot roast. French fries. Cauliflower. Barbecue chicken. Not your typical ballpark cuisine. Sanford says this food is from the luxury suites at Coors, where VIPs eat. Aramark runs concessions at Coors and formed the partnership with We Don't Waste. Before that, this leftover food would have been thrown in the trash, says Brian Arp. He's general manager of Coors Field for Aramark. We love the program. We've been trying for years to figure out a partnership that works. It's great to have finally a success. Arp says it's most valuable when rain causes games to start late, which often means fans go home early or don't show up at all. Fewer fans means more excess food. With the truck loaded, I head outside with Executive Director Arlen Preblood. Is there anything you won't take from the ballpark? Sure. We look for, obviously, high nutritious value product, and that includes protein, that includes vegetables, fruit. There are items that we don't take, such as popcorn. Do you take hot dogs from the place? Certainly, we do take hot dogs. One item that we don't take is, is bread because, there are, quite frankly, there's an overabundance of bread in the city, and rather than waste it, they have an outlet that they can take that bread and compost it or feed it to uh, farm animals. If you're delivering something like hot dogs, how do you repurpose them? They don't have the buns. Sometimes we'll make suggestions to the people that are cooking at facilities. If we delivered a number of hot dogs and they don't have any buns, you can put them into chili. You can chop them up, okay? You can serve them as snacks with toothpicks. And the fact of the matter is, it's good protein. How do you know that the organizations that you're donating to actually use the food and don't allow it to go to waste? When we deliver food, my staff generally looks around to make sure that the product that we've been delivering is being used. And if it's not, then we'll ask them. We delivered product to you last week, and it's still sitting in your refrigeration. You haven't used it. Is there some reason? Was the food bad? And generally the answer is we forgot about it. And if there's a situation where they're not utilizing the food, then we'll back away for a while until they catch up, until they realize that they have to use the product that we're delivering. The other aspect of that is that we try our best to find the best use of the products that we have so that we don't confront them with situations where they have to waste that food. What did these organizations do before they had an opportunity to get your food? So I can give you a perfect example. I received a letter in June from a small agency that's located in Federal Heights. And the letter, and I'll paraphrase it, said that when we were generally open, we would serve about 100 families a week. You began delivering to us fresh produce, fresh dairy, and prepared products. We went from 100 families a week to now 500 families a week. Before, they either 
had to close their doors because they didn't have food. If their budgets allow, they may have to go on to the open market and purchase product. And what are they buying? They're buying what their dollar will stretch best to get. Having done this for a while now, I wonder if you go to events and are preoccupied with food waste there. Do you notice it and does it disturb you? Food waste always disturbs me, whether it's at home or when you go to an event and you see the products being left on the table or servings are too large for the people that are there. And I think it's a question of making the community aware that there's a major issue in this country where 40% of all the products that we produce go to waste. It gets wasted at the distribution. It, it even gets wasted at the farm because we have these artificial measurements of how carrots are supposed to look and how a tomato is supposed to look. Then it goes to the distributor who makes a determination of who can use this. Then when it gets on the shelves of the stores, okay, people make a decision of how much they're going to buy, but they don't always use everything they buy. I do know that some farms donate food that they don't sell, uh, produce that they don't sell, but I guess not all of them do that. Many do, and we'd like to begin to address that with the farmers. It seems to me that in the Depression era, there was a lot of awareness about food waste, and people were very careful. And then there was perhaps a period where people didn't think about it. And now we've sort of gone back to that old way of being concerned about all of the food that we consume and waste. Well, you're right. We've become a nation of abundance. And when you become abundant, you sometimes forget how to conserve your assets and we overspend in many different ways, including with food. In the seven years that I've been involved in this, I've seen the awareness of food waste and food insecurity begin to boil up to a point where people are taking more notice of what food waste is all about. Is there anything individuals can do if they come to the ballpark to prevent food waste? So when you come to the ballpark, okay, you should eat what you get. And it's a balancing act because if you only eat what you get, then the providers of that food would only produce what they need. But it's like any good operation. The last thing this ballpark, Coors Field, wants to have happen is people walk up to a concession stand and say, we're out of food. So they, they have to absolutely produce more than is expected. We benefit from that. In this case, homeless youth will benefit from the food from Coors Field this week. After we pick it up, I take a ride to Sock's Place, a day shelter about a mile from the ballpark. As the We Don't Waste crew unloads the pants, I talk with Doyle Robinson. He co-founded Sock's Place and serves as executive director. We provide a place for street kids, homeless runaways. And where would these... Uh, kids normally eat if they're not eating here? They're begging for it on the, on the 16th Street Mall. Uh, you know, you come out of a restaurant and they're asking you for your leftovers. What did you do for food before you got it from here? We used to serve hamburger helper that we get from the uh, food bank without a hamburger. There's no money exchange with recipients or food donors. We Don't Waste operates solely off of philanthropic contributions. 
The group is small, just six employees, but it's the only organization operating at this scale in Colorado. Preblood says they've saved and distributed nearly 11 million servings this year. He hopes to eventually have a warehouse to store food overnight. That, he says, would help the operation get more food to more people. That's CPR's Andrea Dukakis. She reported that in June with producer Rachel Estabrook, and it was one of our favorite interviews of the year. We'll air more of them as 2016 comes to a close. That's the program for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. Connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. And there are lots of ways to get in touch with us at the website, cprnews.org. Comment beneath individual articles about a story you hear or a conversation. Or at the top of cprnews.org, click contact and send us an email. Thanks for spending some time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.